Howdy, howdy, folks. We're counting down to episode 150 for our sesquicentennial. 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 We're planning to do some special things, including a limited edition t-shirt to celebrate 150 episodes of informative and fun Texas history podcasting. So you need to get online, you need to get your order in, and get ready to get one. Uh, in addition to that, we got a lot of other cool things coming up we're going to try to do to celebrate this majestic milestone of both Texas history and our history. And if you have fond memories of growing up in Texas or living in Texas at, during the sesquicentennial celebration of 1986, uh, drop us a line and tell us about it. Uh, we'd love to hear your stories. It's, it's kind of a uh, brief but uh, unique event in our Texas history that uh, we'd love to talk about. And without further ado... Here's the show. 1970s, yeah. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. The Houston Astros are not an old franchise. They don't have a 100-plus year history of the Boston Red Sox or the Chicago Cubs, and they don't get the worldwide recognition of the New York Yankees. But if you're in Houston or the surrounding area, the Astros are more than just a baseball team. They're part of the fabric of this oil town that became an international hub of commerce, culture, and Texan pride. But first, what's your favorite ballpark snack? Well, uh, my favorite is uh, ice cream sandwiches at the ballpark in Arlington. And this is for John, uh, who is one of the vendors who walks through the stadium. And you can hear him all the way across the stadium, even during a busy game, calling out, Ice cream! <laughs> and it makes you think, I would like some ice cream. And they're delicious on a hot summer day. Yes, which you need in any ballpark in Arlington, Texas. Take out the word Arlington in any ballpark in Texas. Uh, unless it's got a roof, but we'll get into that. <laughs> um, I will always have a deep and abiding love for the dear departed Dome Dogs. Um, nothing in my life, I don't think, has ever tasted as good as a hot dog in the Astrodome. But uh, truthfully, the my fondest memories of ballpark snacks are of eating a pickle or a snow cone at the Little League Park. Oh, that's sweet. Well, listen, I'm just going to say this. Nachos. 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 <laughs> Let's go nachos. Uh, you can't go wrong with nachos. Right. Nachos. But uh, truthfully, most food at the ballpark is uh, overpriced and delicious all at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Now, I've made no secret on this show uh, of my love for the Astros. I grew up going to games in the Astrodome, and some of my fondest childhood memories are set within uh, that landmark building. Against the soundtrack of the bats cracking and cruise. So, fair warning, this is only part one in a series. Um, I've got a lot to say about the Astros, and I want everyone else to hear it, too. The Astros, of course, weren't the first baseball team to call Houston home. After all, baseball is America's pastime. According to the Weekly Telegraph of April 16, 1861, the first recorded meeting of a baseball club in the city 
was held a few days earlier above the J.H. Evans Dry Goods Store and was known simply as the Houston Baseball, two words, club. Um, what isn't known is if that club ever actually played a game. The Civil War broke out soon after that, and there wasn't a lot of professional sports being played anywhere in the nation. After the war, the Daily Telegraph tells us about a game played between the Houston Stonewalls and the Galveston Robert E. Lees at, of all places, the site of the San Jacinto Battleground. Held on San Jacinto Day, April 21, 1868, the Stonewalls won the game. As the Telegraph stated... The contest commenced in good earnest, but from the first innings, it was apparent to the most disinterested looker that the Lees, although the vaunted champions of the state, had at last met their match. At the conclusion of the eighth inning, the Lees, disheartened by the success of their antagonists, gave up the game and acknowledged themselves beaten, fairly and squarely. The runs being counted, it was found that the score stood Stonewall's 35 and the Lees 5. That is a high score for the dead ball era. <laughs> the Stonewalls were subsequently named the champions of the state of Texas. Well, I, I just want to—I just want to point out the dates here and the time. So, if the first game in Texas was in 1861, I think that that really does belie the myth of Abner Doubleday inventing baseball uh, during the Civil War. Yeah. Well, there's. It's funny that you mentioned that because when I was researching this, I was trying to see how far back baseball went and the origins of it. And I was actually reading that uh, the earliest reference to something like baseball is from the late 1700s. Yeah, um, there, there, there may be like the distinctly American version may have come from this area. But uh, about this time, the 1860s is when baseball really took off in the U.S. Yeah, it, it, if, if you go to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, which I've been to, uh, this is Rounders was the was a game yeah. that baseball kind of originated from. But it, yeah, it was in the Civil War era that the the really the formal nature of the game kind of yep. coalesced, and it and it was because of the movement of people around uh, in the Civil War uh, and seeing this form of game being played that it really kind of moved people moved the game around the country yeah now one more interesting tidbit from uh, that article from the daily telegraph um several actual veterans of the battle of san jacinto were aboard the steamboat that carried the team to the field to the battleground um and it says that they quote fought the battle over with no more personal modesty than was absolutely necessary <laughs> I so, what that means. <laughs> I think they weren't modest at all. Well, as thrilling as this tale is, the first official baseball team in Houston was none other than the Houston Babies. This was first organized on December 31st, 1887. Yes, the Houston Babies. Now, they were awarded their name because they were the last to join the newly formed Texas League. They beat the Galveston Giants on opening day, April 1st, 1888, with a score of 4-1. to one. The Texas League had its ups and downs over the next decade or so, with financial backing and success varying widely. The Babies went through several name changes, thankfully, including the Mudcats and the Magnolias, before settling on the Buffaloes in 1896, the same year the team claimed their third league title. The Texas League found stability in 1905, and the Buffaloes won the league pennant in 1909 and 1910. In 1921, the St. Louis Cardinals acquired a majority stake in the club, making it the first affiliated minor league club in Houston. Now, from 1921 to 1958, 
the Buffaloes were an important part of the Cardinals' farm system. Many great players of the day spent time on their roster, including Dizzy Dean and my own great-uncle, Russell Rack. Well, I don't know how great a player my uncle Russell actually was, um, but he loved to tell the stories of uh, playing for uh, the Buffaloes, and uh, I just think it's pretty cool that uh, I know somebody related to someone that played on a professional baseball team. Um, for those taking notes, this is the same uncle I had that dealt cards in the casinos in the heyday of the uh, free <laughs> wow. city of Galveston. So, so he dealt cards at the... Yes, I, I think if uh, in that episode, uh, I think I remember mentioning that uh, in the off-season, he would deal cards in the casinos. Oh, okay. Well, uh, the Texas League, uh, we could actually do a whole show on the Texas League. Uh, there's actually a term for a, a, a bloop single that drops between fielders and outfielders. And between the infielders and outfielders, and it's called a Texas leaguer. And nobody knows why it's really called a Texas leaguer because it doesn't really seem to have originated there. But that's just kind of a common lasting memory of the Texas league. Well, that's a story for another day. Right. So how did Major League Baseball come to Houston? Well, four men were largely responsible for finally landing a Major League franchise in Houston. George Kirksey, Craig Coolian, 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 I guess. Okay. Uh, George Kersky. Craig Coulinan, who led a failed bid for the St. Louis Cardinals in 1952, oil man and real estate tycoon R.E. Bob Smith, who was the money man, and Judge Roy Huffines, who was a former mayor and Harris County judge. They established the Houston Sports Association to finally achieve the dream of a big league Houston club. But Major League Baseball wasn't interested. The American and National Leagues refused to expand, and no other clubs wanted to come to Texas. Eventually, the HSA decided to really turn the screws, and they made an attempt to start their own league, the Continental League, incorporated in 1959 and scheduled to begin play in 1961. They sought recognition by Major League Baseball. Now, this turned out to be just enough pressure to cause the MLB to reconsider, and they agreed to expand from eight teams to ten, with the condition that the Continental League be disbanded. Yeah, they wanted to protect those potential future markets. Now, of the four horsemen that made up the HSA, special credit needs to be singled out and given to the judge. Um, we think he deserves his own episode, but I'll just sum up here, because um, he's about much more than baseball. He's a child of Beaumont and a, and a University of Houston Law School graduate at 19 years old. Roy Hoffines served in the Texas legislature at 22 and was a Harris County judge at 24. He went on to serve as a colorful and controversial mayor that championed civil rights and helped Houston thrive as a progressive community, as it was transforming from a hick oil town, or the perception of such, to what became known as Space City in the 1960s. He was a master salesman, and as Astro's uh, MLB.com beat reporter Brian McTaggart says in his book, 100 Things Astros Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, without the gumption of Hothines, the Astros and the Astrodome may never have existed. On October 17, 1960, the National League granted an expansion franchise to the Houston Sports Association to begin play in 1962. By the rules of the MLB Constitution, the HSA had to buy territorial rights from the Buffaloes, which they finally did in January. The Buffaloes played one last season, now as an affiliate of the Chicago Clubs, in 1961. Then in 62, they became the newly minted National League team of Houston. The Houston Colt 45s, made up mostly of expansion draft players from other teams with a few holdovers from the Buffs, 
played their first game on April 10, 1962 against the Chicago Cubs, winning 11-2. It was Roy Hoffine's 50th birthday, and it was played in a temporary stadium in the shadow of their future home, the freshly under construction Astrodome. They won a three-game sweep against the Cubs, but finished eighth in their first season. Yeah, and uh, just an interesting note, the name uh, Colt 45s was uh, decided upon in a contest uh, where they asked the city of Houston what they should name their team, and uh, that was chosen or suggested and chosen partially because it was the gun that won the West, which uh, was their ambition for their new team. Well, at least they weren't the baseball McBaseballs. <laughs> or the babies. Yeah. In 1963, more young talent was mixed with the veterans, including future stars Jimmy Wynn, Rusty Staub, and Joe Morgan. Their standing in the league didn't improve, however, with the 66 wins and 96 loss record bringing them in at ninth place out of 10. 1964 was relatively uneventful as well, but on the horizon was something big, the eighth wonder of the world. As part of his sales pitch to the city and the Major League Baseball, the judge came up with a master plan that included the Astrodome, the world's first indoor baseball park. It was partly inspired by a visit to the Colosseum in Rome. Now, the Astrodome's air-conditioned confines would make the almost unbearable heat, humidity, and mosquitoes that plagued outdoor games for the Buffaloes and Colt 45s a thing of the past. On December 1st, 1964... In anticipation of their new home and in honor of the proliferation of the space program in Houston, the Colt 45s were renamed the Houston Astros. The Astros' debut in 1965 saw a huge rise in attendance, but it wasn't all because of good baseball. The team still came in ninth, but people came from all over to visit the Astrodome. The novelty had almost worn off of the new stadium when in 1966 they introduced the artificial surface known as AstroTurf because grass wasn't growing as expected since the glass roof panels had been painted translucent to prevent glare. Yeah, the initial design and construction of the Astrodome, it was completely transparent, clear glass so that the grass could get enough light and grow. But due to the glass enhancing the glare of the sun, uh, the players kept missing fly, routine fly balls in the light, so they put translucent paint over those panels, which in turn made the grass die. So, thus, AstroTurf was introduced. I just like that they, that, we're going to the Astronome, that old thing. They got artificial turf. What? <laughs> I must see it. Yeah. Now, baseball for the Astros started off strong in 1966. They were in second place by May and looked like a contender for the pennant, with uh, star Joe Morgan being selected to start in the All-Star game. But they were stalled and ultimately came in eighth in the standings after Morgan broke his kneecap and slugger Jimmy Wynn injured himself and broke his arm, running into a wall in the outfield when they were playing in Philadelphia. 1967 brought some heat to the team as future Hall of Famer and Texas... as future Hall of Famer and Texarkana native Eddie Matthews joined the team, and he had his 500th home run while in Houston. On June 18th, pitcher Don Wilson pitched the first ever no-hitter in a dome stadium or on artificial turf, which since it was the only dome stadium and the only artificial turf, I would think that makes sense. He struck out 15 batters that game, including Hank Aaron, for the final out. 67 also turned into a breakout year for Jimmy Wynn, the Astros center fielder. He hit a club record 37 home runs that season and just barely edged out by Hank Aaron's 39 for the Major League slugging title. 
Wynn also earned the name Toy Cannon due to his relatively small height of 5'9", and also how many home runs he hit in the Dome, a field notoriously unfriendly to hitters. But even with a good-looking team on paper, the Astros only managed to come in ninth again with a winning percentage below 500. Hashtag Moneyball. <laughs> yeah, in fact, um, that year uh, that uh, Hank Aaron beat him by two home runs for the title, uh, Hank Aaron actually is quoted as saying that he thinks Jimmy Wynn really should have won because uh, he played most of his games in the Astrodome, uh, where the, the walls were notoriously far and uh, difficult to hit home runs. Mm -hmm. 1968 was another mostly disappointing season for the Astros, but it also saw an historic pitching duel between Don Wilson and Mets ace Tom Seaver. The game went six hours and 24 innings, with a combined 11 relievers finishing things out. The Astros finally won with a Bob Astromonte single past shortstop Al Weiss. And uh, the Astros have uh, actually, in their history... Um, had many of the longest games, both in innings yeah. and uh, actual time uh, through the years. So I'm, I'm sure we will touch on several more of those. Oh, yeah. I can remember a couple that were I just had to give up on <laughs> so I can go to sleep before school. Uh, a shakeup in 1969 came due to expansion and trades. Aspermonte was traded to the Braves, and Rusty Saab was sent to the newly minted Montreal Expos in exchange for outfielder Asus Alou and first baseman Don Clannenden. Clannenden refused to report to Houston as he had a personality conflict with the Astros manager left over from a previous stint when they were in the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, Houston doesn't want you either, Clannenden. <laughs> Don Wilson continued to be an ace, pitching his second career no-hitter on May 1st, striking out 18 batters and tying the Major League record at the time for single-game strikeouts. He was only 24 and second to Sandy Koufax for career no-hit wins. This performance lit the Astros' fire and they tied the single-game record of seven double plays six days later. The pair of infielder Dennis Mink and Joe Morgan were heating up, with the former turning 90 RBIs and the latter 15 home runs. They dominated the Mets in 1969, with Mink and Wynn hitting two grand slams in a single inning against a team that would go on to win the World Series. They finished the year with an 81-81 record, their first 500 season. Was that the Miracle Mets? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not a Mets fan, but uh, it very well could be. I, I just know that it's one of those situations where uh, a team that is not contending completely dominates the team that goes on to win it all. So, go Strohs. The Astros were thought to be a serious contender in 1970 as well. They called up 19-year-old Dominican Cesar Cedeno, who batted 310. Dennis Mink hit 304 and Jesus Alou 306. The team's average as a whole was up 19 points over the previous year. But, alas, despite these batting numbers, their pitching staff struggled, and they finished the season in fourth place. Yeah, that actually was the Miracle Met season. Well, starting in 1971, the color orange became more prominent in Houston as the Astros embraced the growing uniform trends in Major League Baseball. Their elastic waistbands and zip-up polyester jerseys were popular, but that was about all that changed that year. Batting averages were down, and although Larry Durker was selected to the All-Star game, an arm injury kept him from participating. Of note, however, was the September debut of pitcher J.R. Richard who would go on to many great years mm -hmm. with the Astros. 
I'm sensing a trend here with the Astros. They're on the brink. Yeah. Perhaps the most notorious event for Houston baseball in 1971 was the November trade with the Cincinnati Reds. The Astros sent second baseman Joe Morgan, infielder Dennis Mink, and pitcher Jack Bellingham, outfielder Cesar Geronimo, and prospect Ed Armbrister to Cincinnati for first baseman Lee May, second baseman Tommy Helms, and infielder Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart? Not that Jimmy Stewart. The actor? Wow. No. (laughs) Everyone, not just in Houston, was scratching their heads, and Cincinnati obviously got the better end of the deal. This trade solidified the Big Red Machine, which was the nickname given to the Reds of 1970 to 1979, widely recognized as one of the best teams in history. In that span, they won six National League West Division titles, four National League pennants, and two World Series titles. So so we're saying if they'd gotten Pete Rose to come to the Astros, maybe the Astros would have done all those things. Uh, Who knows? We'll never know. Now, while they were no big red machine in 1972, the Astros did have their first winning record. They had four players hit 20 or more home runs, and Cedeno hit 320 with 55 stolen bases and became the first Astros player in history to hit for the cycle. Fans hoped for more of the same in 1973, but while the same hitters kept their stellar numbers, pitching injuries again kept them to a fourth-place finish. What does hit for the cycle mean? Hit for the cycle is when you hit a single, a double, a triple, and a home run all in the same game. Well, how about that? 1975 introduced many changes for the Astros. The Astro Domain property, which included the Astrodome, the Astro World Amusement Park, which we all loved as children, and of course the Astros baseball team, was running a $38 million deficit. Rahaf Fines, who maintained sole ownership of the team since 1965, was forced to transfer control to GE Credit and Ford Motor Credit. These creditors just wanted to preserve value, so any money spent would need to be saved somewhere else. They brought in Tal Smith from the New York Yankees, who had been instrumental in the early years of the Houston team, as general manager to make things work. Smith had a lot of holes to fill with the team and not a lot of money to do it with. And I have a note here about the, uh, the big hill at Minute Maid Park. Yes. It's, it's called Tal Hill. Yes, it is. And it's named for, named for him. It is. And we will talk more about that when we, we in part um, the fifth or whatever it's going to be by the time we get to uh, the made part. Yeah. The year, however, began with tragedy. All-star pitcher Don Wilson was found dead in the passenger seat of his car with the engine running inside the garage attached to his house. His son also died and his wife and daughter were hospitalized. The official cause of death ruled it an accident, but the Astros had lost one of the greats. He was 29 years old. Wilson's uniform number 40 was retired on April 13, 1975. Now, on a brighter note, a much brighter note, 1975 saw the introduction of the famous and, to some, infamous rainbow uniforms that would come to dominate many people's memories of baseball in the late 1970s. (laughs) Going along with the baseball trend away from the traditional button-up, pinstripe uniforms and such, the jerseys had wide, multi-shade stripes of orange, red, and yellow with a large blue star on the midsection. Uh, There were matching stripes that ran down the sides of the pant legs, and the pants also bore their jersey numbers. Uh, The critics hated them, thought they looked ridiculous, but fans adored them, and copies of those uniforms popped up all over in little leagues and high schools all over the country. 
Uh, this rainbow style was so distinct that the Astros wore it at home and on the road until 1980. Um, it's traditional for baseball teams to have different uniforms when they're at home and on the road, often to contrast with whatever the other team is wearing, you know, because there were a lot of grays and whites and such, and you wanted to tell people out on the field, tell them apart. Well, the rainbow did uh, kind of stood out, so they didn't have to worry about uh, clashing with the other team on the field. No, they clashed. And yes, and in fact, in 1981, as a child, I was a bat boy on a little league team that was the Astros, and we did indeed have the rainbow uniforms. Loved those uniforms. <laughs> they were classics. <laughs> 1970s, yeah. In addition to these snazzy new uniforms, 1975 saw the debut of Enos Cabell, who became the everyday third baseman and was a mainstay for the team for many years to come. Lee May was traded, and he made room for Bob Watson at first base, who hit 324 with 85 RBIs, which was a bright spot for the season, other than the bright uniforms everyone was wearing. More significant, however, were the acquisitions by the Astros of Joe Necro and Jose Cruz from the Braves and Cardinals, respectively. Necro had learned to throw the knuckleball from his older brother Phil and won six games with an ERA of 307. Cruz became a pillar of the team for many years. While much was expected of this promising team, they ended up with the worst record in baseball that year at 64 wins and 97 losses. It was worse even than the first year of the Colt 45s, but of course not as bad as the 2011 or 2012 Astros, which we will get to in due time. They did finish third in 1976, and Larry Durker finished out his career with the Astros with a no-hitter and the 1,000th game played in the Astrodome. They finished third place again in 1977. A big obstacle to the success of the Astros in the late 70s was, the, was that the team was still controlled by Ford Motor Credit. Ford Motor Credit wasn't interested in spending money on a free agent market, so all the talent had to come up through the farm system or had to be acquired inexpensively, much like the movie Major League. <laughs> They were on the verge, however, of realizing a lot of potential. 1979 was the turnaround year. They made moves in the 1978 offseason that would bolster a struggling team, acquiring shortstop Craig Reynolds and catcher Alan Ashby. In May of 1979, Dr. John McMullen of New Jersey agreed to buy the Astros, and with a solid investor running the show, they were more likely to spend money on free agents. The 79 season was a good one. Cruz and Cabell each stole 30 bases, Joe Necro won 21 games, and J.R. Richard won 18. The Astros were coming together as a team that could win their division, and they battled with Cincinnati until the end. They came in one and a half games behind the pennant-winning Reds, turning in their best season to date at 89 wins and 73 losses. Now, there had been rumors of the Astros being moved out of Houston, but with a single owner, again those rumors faded. McMullen was willing to loosen the purse strings, and the organization could finally compete to fill some holes. He proved to Houston that he wanted a winning team, and so he signed the native of Alvin, Texas, four-time no-hitting pitcher Nolan Ryan, to the first million-dollar-a-year contract in baseball history. After nearly two decades of baseball that fluctuated between abysmal and near greatness, the Houston Astros were on the brink of something wonderful. And this sets the stage for mostly the Astros that I remember from the very late 70s and uh, 80s. Um, players like Craig Reynolds, Alan Ashby, Enos Cabell, of course, Jose Cruz, and Nolan Ryan. Uh, those were all the names that I remember as a kid. So 
I mean, it's the Astros. They've the perennial underdogs. Um, their first decade was filled with a lot of uh, near greatness uh, amid a lot of not so greatness. But um, you can't argue that they didn't have a huge impact, especially in Houston. I think the interesting thing about the Astros, especially, is, is that I want to say the novelty that kind of diminishes them, but the novelty really of the team in the environment that they played in, and, and that they they were they were distinctive because of where they played, uh, even before their uniforms changed to make them really distinctive. The idea of this team that could play. Um, any day of the year uh, if they wanted to and it'd be nice and cool inside and uh shaded and and not not in the sun not not having to battle inclement weather and not having to deal with the humidity in Houston that was that was an always an interesting thing and and I can just remember you know as primitive as the televisions were they weren't high definition but just how vividly green and fluorescent that field <laughs> was on television as a kid um, just seeing that feel, and it's like it's always green. There was never any patches. Yeah, yeah. I, I think building on that, Sean. I mean, you know, they represent to me the Astros represent like this ideal of of the evolution of things. I mean, baseball is an old game with you know, and you picture the classic uniforms of the you know, I've got my knickerbockers on, and let's go play a round of baseball, boys. You know, and. But the Astros, they, they wore space-age uniforms. They had a space-age logo. They were built in Space City. They played, you know, uh, you know, we could play indoors on the sun inside the Astrodome. And, yep. and I think that that's, you know, the idea of this is what, ba- this, you know, for the space age, for that jet age, this is what the future looks like. It's air yeah. conditioned, under glass, and indoors. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we kind of touched on how difficult it was to get a major league franchise in Houston. I mean, they tried for many, many years to get the major leagues to come to the city. Uh, but it wasn't until Roy Huffines, the judge, put together the whole proposal to say, hey, you bring the major league franchise here, and I've got this whole idea for a giant indoor stadium. Um, where you can be out of the Texas heat, away from the mosquitoes that uh, we've had to deal with since you know the late 1800s when baseball first started here. So you know that became a reality, and you know I personally can't imagine um, Major League Baseball in Texas without a roof over the stadium. I don't have to imagine it because the ballpark in Arlington, Globe Life Park, um, doesn't have a roof, and it's nearly unbearable some days in that heat yeah if you're so, on the upper deck at the ballpark but yeah I, don't, think, I mean don't get me yeah. wrong it's a beautiful stadium but the the ability to have the roof and to be comfortable and uh, it just really enhances the enjoyment of the game well and and when you add in the factor of the difference between houston and and in dallas and houston and arlington is is that humidity is yes. that 110 percent humidity in Houston, in in in, uh, in June, you know, it is absolutely nightmarish. And this was at the, you know, this was before, um, obviously, Houston Astros started before the Rangers did. You know, Rangers started in in the late or the mid seventies, early to mid seventies, a little bit, a couple of years later. And we talked about that on our previous episode, that just how, like you said, unbearable that stadium on the on the turnpike was. Uh, it was it was an open metal stadium. Uh, and so games in, in August were horrific, hellish experiences. We all, we all took science class. It's called a solar cooker. 
exactly. Um, exactly. The, yeah. But you didn't have that in Houston. You, you may have. You may get rainstorms in the middle in inside the stadium. Yeah. Well, in fact, um, <laughs> there's the hat. But uh, I was just reading today, uh, as of this recording, and I'm going to have to look it up so that I get uh, the story correct. Anyway, on June fifteenth of nineteen seventy six. Um, there was actually a rainout at the Astrodome. Um, the rain had been so crazy that uh, the streets around Houston and around the Astrodome were impassable. Um, so they canceled the game and postponed it. But there were some fans and a lot of the players were already at the Dome. Um, so what they did was they pulled out a bunch of tables out to the middle of the field and uh, they ate dinner with, they invited the fans down onto the field and uh, the players and the fans and a bunch of the workers in the dome, they all just sat there and ate dinner in the middle of the Astrodome because uh, the, the game had been canceled. <laughs> well, so, it, it, so is it a myth that there was, that there could be rain from inside the Astrodome? You know, I don't know, but uh, we can definitely research that for our episode that we do on the Astrodome which uh, we will do one of these days. But uh, moving on from just the, the, you know, the facilities of the Dome, uh, just the Astros themselves, they weren't, at least in this era by any measure, they weren't what you would consider a great baseball team. I mean, they were, they were usually at the bottom of their standings, but they had you know, flashes of greatness, and there were a lot of really great players that came through there. I mean, you can only imagine what they could have done if they had managed to hang on to, uh, for instance, Joe Morgan. And, uh, you know, when they acquired some of the players that they acquired later, how successful they possibly could have been. Um, so there's a lot, there's a series of near misses going on there. I, I find it, I find the story of Jimmy Wynn interesting um, because he is, you know, not, you know, we did talk about that the Astrodome, the, the peculiarities of the Astrodome, that you know that people don't realize that there are a few regulations about baseball stadiums and the field, but one of them that there's not a regulation on is how big the outfield can be. Yes, and the Astrodome is such a mag, just massive stadium. That, yeah, the players hated hitting in that stadium because. Again, the the outfield was so so big, and there was there's no major league rule that said your outfield has to be X amount of distance from from the from the plate. So some stadiums it was super super close, and and those are hitters parks, and some stadiums super far away. And and the Astrodome was certainly not a hitters park. Nope, it was uh, 340 feet to left, 406 feet to center, and 330 feet to right. Yeah, um, the power alleys were 375 feet. So. Uh, Jimmy Wynn, uh, the toy cannon, hit uh, 121 of his career 214 homers uh, in the Astrodome. So uh, more than half of his homers were hit in the Astrodome. So that's pretty amazing. And not only that, uh, several of them actually went into the upper deck of the Astrodome in the outfield. And there was actually a couple of seats that were embroidered um, with a toy cannon logo. Well, that's nice. Well, uh, I was gonna not to take us too off of the track, but I was gonna. I did get a chance today to sit down and talk to um, to my uncle, and he graduated school in 1965, and he um, he'd been drafted, but he didn't end up going into the league. He went and played uh, football at A and I, but uh, then he was drafted in 1966 in the secondary draft. Um, 
and that was by the Astros organization. Now, he didn't play for the Astros. He was actually put into the minor leagues uh, and played in Bismarck, North Dakota in the Rookie League for two months. Now, because it was 1966, he was also drafted into the military, um, but because of his affiliation with the Astros, he was put into a Marine Reserve unit, and so he went and did six months of active duty right after he did the Rookie League, and then the day he got back from active duty, he got on a bus and went to Florida to do spring training. And, uh, you know, he just talked to me. He, had, he has a bunch of stories around just, you know, the excitement of being in, in professional baseball, but also just how hard it is. But everything was in Cocoa, Florida. And so there were all the – they played in those um, Florida leagues for a while and, and played around. And, and uh, you know, he had, a, he had a pretty good run, and he was a, a really good athlete. Uh, unfortunately, he uh, blew his arm out about two years into the whole thing. You know, they don't have the Tommy John surgeries and things like they have now. Um, yep. So he just, that was kind of it for his career. But he did mention um, that uh, a famous Houston uh, baseballer, Bob Watson, was actually in the same reserve unit that he was. And so that uh, they would they would drive in together to go do their reserve uh, weekends. Uh, Larry Jerker was around at that time. Yep. Uh, and also he uh, he passed in the halls with the uh, Scipio Sphinx, so it was another kind of famous Astro. So yep. he was in and around a, a good class of, of baseball players. And by the way, uh, you know Nolan Ryan was drafted in '65, I think was the year he came out and drafted. So he's about that age. Cool. Um, it's funny you mentioned uh, Bob Watson, one of the people that he knew. Um, for those of you that are trolling through late night television, or perhaps it's on uh, Netflix or something like that, uh, there's a movie, uh, The Bad News Bears in Breaking Training, uh, the sequel to the original Bad News Bears, which did not do as well. Um, critically, it's probably not as good as the original. Did not uh, but, need a sequel is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, but uh, there was a scene that they shot uh, in the Astrodome um, where the fictional team called the Houston Toros was playing a doubleheader with a team uh, with another fictional team. But in between, the, the story goes, in between that those doubleheader games, the Bad News Bears were supposed to be playing a team from Japan. It was supposed to be like a, a four-inning game, and then it got called because it was going overtime. And uh, one of the professional players is supposed to come out of the dugout and say, hey, come on, let the kids play. And that was Bob Watson. I say he still uh, apparently gets royalty checks for 5 to $10. As well, he, had a, um, he eventually became the a vice president in the Major League Baseball organization. Uh, he scored baseball's one millionth run and also became the first African-American general manager in Major League Baseball history. For the Astros. You know, we're just, like I said, we're just getting uh, in this time frame, we're just getting to uh, the, the Astros team that I remember watching as a kid. And uh, they're on the verge of actually accomplishing uh, some success uh, that it had eluded them uh, through their first decade. So I'm looking forward to talking more about that in the future. I'm really excited, Scott. I think you've set a wonderful table for a lovely buffet that we're going to have to come back and, and, uh, and dip into again. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share the show on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Texas Podcast. You can go to brainstaple.com and leave some feedback also. 
You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. You love this show. You love them strows. So tell your friends and leave that review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. If you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.